0: Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatch, and you are tuned into the Double Edged Sword program here on the Divine Mercy family of Catholic radio stations. And on the Double Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. So today, I kind of had the idea of uh, working on a developing a a, way, a, a thought of, that i had on what we call what might call extremism i know that extreme that's a real popular word these days that people like to use a lot it's a real big buzzword people talk about extreme sports you know extreme skateboarding or extreme BMX you know bicycle motocross where they zip across the dirt and go up in ramps and do backflips and things like that or extreme motocross where they do that with a motorcycle Extreme rock climbing and so on, extreme skydiving, all kinds of outrageous and fanatical stunts, you know, that are usually put you in a lot of danger. But, you know, there's extreme. Everything's extreme. I've even seen extreme eating where you see these idiots get on television and start stuffing as many hamburgers or hot dogs down their throat as they possibly can and usually end up throwing up later on. Um, on the more comic side, you have extreme shopping or extreme couponing. I like the extreme couponing. You know, they'll show these people that go through and collect coupon after coupon after coupon, and then go to the store and load up with you know four or five carts full of stuff. And by the time they get through cashing all their coupons, you know they end up you know owing five bucks for all this stuff, or sometimes as as even get money back. But again, it just sort of seems like the whole thing of extreme that everything has to be extreme somehow. But there's other extremes, I think, that are much more damaging, and we should try to be aware of them. And the trick to it, I think, is that when we see one extreme, we should look for another in the opposite direction that caused it. I think that extremes and I'll, I'll give you some examples here in just a second, but I'm not talking about extremes, again, like extreme skateboarding, or extreme couponing in this particular case. I'm talking about kind of social extremes and religious extremes and things like that. That um, whenever you have one extreme that's on one end, there's usually another extreme on the other end that brought the first extreme about to start with. And I think that's what, you know, that's kind of what I want to talk about on this installment of Double-Edged Sword. You know, the fact that extremes tend to breed other extremes. As Christians, the only extreme that we are called to embrace is the extreme self-sacrificing, self-emptying love of Jesus on the cross. Any other extreme, I think, tends to just kind of be bad news. So here's a couple of examples for you. And this is why we're glad to have Catholic Radio, because I have a good 45 minutes to an hour here on Double-Edged Sword, where we can really kind of go into the history of these things and really explain the stories and explain to you what's behind it. I'm sure probably everybody listening to this broadcast has heard of the Reverend Fred Phelps. He's a Baptist minister from the Westboro Baptist Church in Topeka, Kansas. And he's made quite a splash in the media for the past couple of decades, all you know because of his um, campaign that he has against the homosexual agenda, against the gay agenda. He hates Catholics, too, by the way. He's a good Protestant, so he hates Catholics. But the irresponsible media in this country has given him more and better publicity he could possibly ever hope to buy, even if he had all of George Soros' money. So I think that, you know, when you look at a guy like Phelps and you look at how he, you know, he's, you know, in the media, I think over the past five years or so, especially since Phelps started targeting the funerals of uh, American military veterans who were killed in action, because his theory is, is that um, whenever an American soldier dies and whatever kind of suffering and damage and humiliation that America might suffer on the battlefield, he says that that's divine retribution. He, He believes that's God punishing the United States for being tolerant and embracing the gay agenda. I don't I think you'd have kind of a hard time proving that scripturally, but that's what the guy thinks. But anyway, but how did he get his start? This is the this is kind of the crux of the whole thing. The guy got started at some point in history. No doubt he is an extremist, but could there be another extreme that gave birth to him? And as it turns out, I think there is. But to understand it, and again, this is why we're glad to have Catholic Radio where we can take some time to go back and kind of lay the foundation and give you the historical background as to what's going on with all this. Back in 1969, we had what were called the Stonewall Riots. You may or may not have heard of those. What happened was, was up until 1969, the, the gay community in the United States was pretty much marginalized. Um, they really didn't have any kind of a place. Everybody made fun of them. Comedian George Carlin, who was, you know, kind of a dope smoking left wing wacko himself, was talking about whenever he was growing up in New York City, when he was a, a teenager, he would jokingly talk about the fact that they would go downtown, you know, beating up homosexuals as some kind of a, something they did, you know, for fun, which, of course, no one should ever do. But in 1969, what happened was there was a bar in, um, in, in New York City, I forgot the name of the borough that it was in, I, it wasn't in Brooklyn. It might've been in Harlem anyway, I can't remember. But um, there was a bar there called the Stonewall. It was called the Stonewall Bar and Grill or whatever. And it was kind of a place where misfits sort of hung out. You know, runaways were there, drug addicts were there. And it was, it was a big place for drag queens, you know, for messed up guys who like to dress up like women. You know, they'd hang up, they hang around there and so on. And evidently, as the story goes, this much I, I just kind of know by hearsay and kind of what I've read, that evidently the, the police, you know, the New York City Police Department would regularly go into the place and just kind of hassle and harass the people that were in there, again, which they probably shouldn't have been doing. But evidently in 1969 what happened was the cops went in to do, kind of do their usual kind of, you know, roughing up of the queers and everything, you know, just kind of the stuff they would they would do. And this time they pushed back. I mean, evidently they must have talked about it beforehand saying we're tired of this and the next time they come in to give us a rough time, we're going to rise up and we're going to push back, you know, we're not going to put up with this anymore. And so they did. And as a result of that, and keep in mind folks, this is 1969, this is way in the days before the, you know, the dumb phones as I call them, you know, smartphones and Twitter and Facebook and email and all that kind of stuff where you know, one thing happens in one part of the world and the rest of the world knows about it 20 seconds later. This wasn't, that wasn't the case back in those days. I mean, the only way you would know is by making an expensive long distance telephone call or if something happened to make it on the nightly news with Walter Cronkite or something like that. But for whatever reason, news of this pushback spread like wildfire throughout the whole country. And so then that was kind of the beginning of the gay rights movement. Now, let's fast forward to the early 70s to Topeka, Kansas. In Topeka, Kansas, if you haven't been there before, there is a beautiful park in Topeka called Gage Park. It has a lot of really tall trees in it, beautiful green grass. Gage Park is there, I mean, the, the, um, the Topeka Zoo is there in Gage Park. It's a, a wonderful zoo. And another thing to keep in mind is that back in 1971, 1972, back in those days, there was only about 25% of the houses in this country had air conditioning. Now, you're sitting there saying, now, wait a minute. What does the Topeka Zoo and air conditioning have to do with Fred Phelps? Well, see, again, this is the glory of Catholic Radio. We can connect the dots for you. Back in those days, and especially up out here in Western Kansas, it gets hot, but it's usually pretty dry. In Eastern Kansas, it gets hot, but it's humid as all get out. It is really sticky there, I used to live there. And what would happen is Gage Park was a family park where families went to hang out. And many times, especially during the summertime, it'd be very hot and very humid. You know, dad would probably call from from work and call his wife and say, look, you know, it's really hot, why don't you just get the kids I'll stop and get a pizza or get some chicken or mom would make some sandwiches or whatever. And then they would just meet in the park and get out of the hot house and then, you know, get outside in the shade, sit in the cool grass, and families would enjoy themselves in Gage Park. And that's what they did. You know, in Topeka, you know, Gage Park in Topeka was a place, you know, where families gathered. Well, after the gay movement got emboldened by the Stonewall riots in 1969, The gay community in Topeka decided, well, we're going to co-opt Gage Park as our hangout. It's a public park. Any citizen is welcome to hang out there. I don't have any trouble with that. I would hope nobody else has any trouble with it. But in the typical kind of in-your-face and extreme kind of uh, fanaticism that the gay movement has come to embrace, they weren't content just to say, well, we're going to start gathering and hanging out in Gage Park. No, instead, in Gage Park, they were very openly engaging in genital sexual contact for anyone to see, including families with little kids. Now, what happens? You know, people are upset about this. People are calling the police. Well, the thing of it is, the city leadership in Topeka at the time, again, this story that I get was from, from a friend of mine who was going to school at Washburn University while all this stuff was happening. So he was kind of a, a, a firsthand, um, uh, he was a first-hand observer of all this mayhem. But what happened was, you know, normally, if anybody engages any kind of sexual contact in public, they get arrested. You know, it's called lewd and lascivious conduct or whatever they want to call it, you know. And so you can't do that kind of stuff in public. But um, again, the gay community thought, well, this is how we're going to make ourselves be known. This is how we're going to stake out our territory and demand our, our place in society. So off they go. Well, I think probably the first time they tried it, someone called the police and the police came and arrested them and so on. But then the order, the edict came down from on high from leadership in Topeka. No, nope, this is too much of a hot potato issue. you know, the the gay community is standing up and demanding to be counted and demanding to be recognized. And, you know, any kind of, of arrest of them for doing anything would be seen as oppression or would be seen as discrimination or bigotry or whatever. And so they just backed off and did nothing. Well, before too long, no family wants to go to Gage Park. It's a very embarrassing thing on the part of the city of Topeka. Well, during this time, folks, guess who the only voice in Topeka was who is standing up and saying, this is wrong, this cannot be allowed to go on. If you guessed Fred Phelps, you get an A+. That's exactly right. It was Fred Phelps who was the one who was standing up and saying, this is wrong. You know, sodomy is wrong. And, you know, what you believe about sodomy or not, doing it in public in front of kids is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. Well, so you can see on the one hand, is Fred Phelps an extremist? You bet he is. Is Fred Phelps sick in the head? You bet he is. But look at the extreme that bred it. I mean, for goodness sake, if engaging in sodomy, the two guys engaging in sodomy in a public park and getting away with it. If that is not extreme, I don't know what is. And so you can see that, you know, you have the extreme of Fred Phelps, and he's an embarrassment to this day because he calls himself a Christian. And any of us that call ourselves Christian, of course, the media that hates Christians and hates Christianity, is very quick to attach Fred Phelps to the rest of us and then say somehow or another that, you know, we're responsible for him or that, that we have some kind of a kinship with him, which, of course, none of us wants to claim. But the point, though, is, I think, is to when we look at this is to see that, yeah, he's an extreme. He's an extreme case. There's no question about it. But that his extremism was bred from another extremism that no one wants to talk about or that's been handily forgotten or swept under the rug from history. That, again, whenever you had all this just basically gross conduct going on, immoral conduct going on in public, in a public place, you know, for all the world to see, including the little kids. And the, the the leadership sits back and does nothing. You know, if you want to stop Fred Phelps in his tracks, what should have happened back in the early 70s was the city of Topeka should have just enforced the laws that are on the books and go up to these people and say, look, I don't care what your thing is, if it's with guys with other guys or whatever, but you can't do this in public. If you wanna do it at home, in your own house, in your own apartment, behind closed doors, you know, as, as disgusting and distasteful as we find this conduct, you have the freedom to do it, so go ahead and knock yourself out, but you can't do it in public, just like they would do if a man and a woman was engaged in this kind of behavior. If they would have done that, if they would have simply enforced the laws that were on the books, we wouldn't have Fred Phelps today. And so again, my, that's kind of my first example of how kind of one form of extremism just tends to kind of breed in another one, all right? There, there are many other examples. How about this one? Remember Columbine High School, you know, back in the 90s when um, those two rather disturbed um, teenagers went on a shooting spree at their school there in, in Colorado And also, I think even if we look at um, the, the Batman movie in Aurora, Colorado, and Newtown Elementary School in Sandy Hook in Connecticut, I think it was over there, whenever we see these things again, I think that when you think about a couple of kids going on a shooting and bombing rampage in a school and killing their classmates, that's extreme. Whenever you think of some nut job going into a movie theater and opening fire on a bunch of people and killing them, that's extreme. You know, anyone that would go into an elementary school and gun down you know five and seven year olds in cold blood, that is extreme. No one's going to argue with that for a minute. But again, I think that when we see an extreme, when we see extreme cases like that, you know, like Columbine, like the movie theater, like um, Sandy Hook Elementary, when we see extremes like that, well, maybe we should look and see if there's another extreme that bred that extreme. And I don't think we have to look very far. You know, whenever um, whenever the, all this happened, all the talking heads got on television. I'll never forget this. after After Columbine. And, uh, you know, you had the government officials, of course, because it was at a public school and they were doing all the damage control they could. You had all these public officials that were sitting there saying, well, and everybody had their little straw man they were going after. Well, the problem is the video games are too violent. Well, the problem is parents don't spend enough time with their kids. Well, the problem is, and they just kind of went on and on and on and on. There was calm to George Will was um, really kind of broke all the, you know, everybody was kind of. Ranting and raving with all their little kind of pet theories and stuff, each of which was pretty, pretty lame and pretty empty. He comes up and he says, "You know, maybe these two kids were just evil. Maybe they had just too much of an of an encounter with the devil, and maybe they had just allowed Satan into their hearts and minds and souls, and they were just agents of evil. That's all there is to it." Well. Why not believe in that? Why not believe in evil? We're going to get back to the extremism here in just a second, but I think for now we'll take a little detour and just talk about evil. How come we don't want to believe in evil? How come we don't want to say, well, what these kids did was evil because they were evil. They were possessed by evil. Well, I think that if there is evil, there must also be good. And if there is a good, there must be an ultimate good who is God himself. But we cannot mention God. He has been cast out of the discussion of the public forum, and we only believe in ourselves. And in fact, I, I know that on earlier installments of Double-Edged Sword, it's been quite some time ago, but when you when you look back in history, and in, in let's just look at, in Christian history, from the year zero when Jesus was born until about the year 1500, most of the Christian world, which would be essentially Western Europe at the time, believed that God was the center of the universe, that God was the center of our being, God was the center of everything that we said and did. Then comes along the, the 15th, 16th, or the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, and then we had what I call the shipwreck of Christianity, which some people call the Protestant Reformation. But then you also have what people like to call the Enlightenment. I call it the endarkenment. Enlightenment, it's kind of a, a prejudicial term. It, you know, it kind, kind of carries a judgment with it in that the Enlightenment – as opposed to the Dark Ages or the Middle Ages, well, what were the Middle Ages? If they're the Middle Ages, they are in the middle of something. Well, they're in the middle of two extremes, once again, two extremes of hedonism and consumerism and, and just the, you know, the messed up stuff that we see today. You see the Roman Empire, and you see it in, in its extreme condition, in which it was with all of the bad things that were going on then, and then you have the, the modern era, the t- you know the, the time that we have now, basically from the 1700s on, and the Middle Ages was kind of that time between those two. And so evidently the historians must think that the, the excesses are the extremes of the Roman Empire and the excesses are the extremes of our time, that that's what's to be desired because the Middle Ages was considered to be bad. Well, one of my heroes, from Professor Peter Kreeft, um he says we should call the Middle Ages the Ages of Faith because that's when people were motivated by their faith in God more than anything. But what happens is now is that, you know, now that after the the modern era and the the endarkenment or the enlightenment, if they wanna call it that, who do we believe in? We believe in ourselves. That is why we look for social, psychological, and other secular human explanations when things fly out of control. We certainly don't want to look for some kind of an explanation that says, well, maybe we violated God's commands, and if we get back on track and get ourselves back in harmony with the will of God, maybe some of our problems will go away. We're not going to do that. Instead, we want more counseling, education, awareness. Always be careful whenever you hear those words. Counseling, education, and awareness. Those are buzzwords of the endarkenment. Those are buzzwords of secular humanism. And you might notice none of them ever work. If they worked, they wouldn't keep asking for more and more of the same. On the other hand, if we acknowledge evil, then we can look to God and beg forgiveness. But of course, we're much too evolved for that. We don't want to do that. Well, getting back to the Columbine disaster and getting back to the, again, the murders, of those little kids at Sandy Hook Elementary and and that nut job that opened fire on the movie theater in, in Colorado, in, in Denver, I think it was. Mother Teresa commented in the wake of the Columbine disaster. She says, you know, in a country of one and a half million abortions per year, the only thing that should surprise you is that things like this don't happen more often. Okay. I'm, I'm going to talk about that again. I'm going to kind of Reiterate that, that when you look at Columbine High School, Sandy Hook Elementary School, the movie theater massacre in, in, in Denver, what Mother Teresa says in a country of over a million abortions a year, the only thing that should surprise us is that things like this don't happen more often. All right? Well, you know, I think that when you look at how in this country, when you say, well, gosh, you know, gunning down little kids in their elementary school, which should be a happy and safe place for them, that's extreme. I agree. Gunning down high school kids in their high school, they just kind of came to school for the day when they were hoping to see their friends and hoping you will know, maybe learn something. I don't know. But the last thing they came to school thinking it was they were going to be bombed and murdered, that's extreme. I agree with that 100%. You know, or again, people just go off to the movie theater and they want to go see a movie and they got to all of a sudden encounter some kook with a with a gun, loaded gun, spraying bullets over the place. That's extreme. But why is it that, you know, we see that and we say that's extreme. But if you mention the one point two to one point five million abortions a year, people just shrug their shoulders and go, oh, how can you keep bringing that up? Everybody, how can you always go back to the abortion thing all the time? Well, because it's an extreme the, the fact that you have one and a half million abortions a year, what that means, folks, is I, I heard a rather rather startling statistic the other day. They said that 40% of the kids in our country are born out of wedlock. 20% of the kids in our country are aborted. Now, you think about that. I'm going to say that again. 40% of the kids in this country are born without the parents being married. 20% of the children in this country are aborted. Now, you don't think that is an extreme and you don't think that, again, that if you kind of go through and start connecting all the dots, because what happens with the kids that are born out of wedlock? All you have to do is look up any of the research on this, and you can see that when they go to school, they tend to have a more difficult time in school. They have to hire more paraprofessionals, all kinds of, of, of supplementary programs to make sure these kids can read and write and spell and do their math and things like that, all because things are very unsettled and unstable at home. And so I think that if we, and less than until, we come to agree with the fact that things like murdering one and a half million babies a year, having 40% of our kids born without a dad in the house every year, that's extreme too. And it's, it's those extremes, I think, that breed the other extremes. You know, you have kind of a, you have what they sometimes call a casual or a causal relationship. A casual relationship would be this. You would say, well, ninety eight percent of the people who died this year ate carrots within the last year. What, well, does that mean the carrots cause death? Obviously not. That's what's called a casual relationship. Then you have what's called a causal relationship, where one thing necessarily causes the other. So you say, well, you know people who who smoke cigarettes and don't exercise and eat a lot of grease and stuff, you know they have a higher you know they have higher incidences of heart disease and things like that. Well, then you have a causal relationship. What I'm prepared to argue here and what I, what I think that, again, if we just take a little bit of time to think about it, is that there is a causal relationship between these extremes. There is a causal relationship between the extreme of people just ignoring the, the immorality that was going on in Gage Park in Topeka and the, the rising of Fred Phelps. I think there is a causal relationship there. I think there is a causal relationship between the mass murder of babies and then you know what you telegraph this to people in society that look, even babies in their mother's womb, which should be the safest place in the world for a baby, is now the most dangerous place in the world for a baby. When you telegraph that, that message to the culture at large, and especially when you have people who are a little bit mentally deranged to begin with, and they're brought up in a culture that says, hey, murdering unborn babies is no problem at all. And in fact, if you don't believe in murdering unborn babies, it's because you're full of hate. Um, You hate women. You hate women's choice, you know, and things like that. Well, folks, that's extreme. That is extremism. And we've all been kind of just sort of numb to it, I think, because the media never says anything about it, that um, that in fact, if anything, again, whenever anybody stands up and, and takes a stand against the abortion agenda, they're, you know, they're labeled out by by the people in the media as being kooks or just being out of touch with women's issues and so on. You might notice uh, over the last few years, the March for Life in Washington has just been growing and growing and growing and growing. I mean, you know, there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who show up for the March every year and every year the media just ignores it. EWT uncovers it and of course, they, they give it quite a bit of coverage, but the rest of the media outlets, the New York Times, CNN, Fox, you know, MSNBC, all the various news outlets, they just ignore it. It's, it's like it doesn't even happen. You know, over a, almost a half a million, over a half a million people show up in Washington to peacefully witness to the value of human life and they're ignored. But let a 1,000 people show up someplace demanding for the right to smoke marijuana or demanding for, for gay marriage. And oh man, the media will jump on that like a duck on a June bug. And then the next thing you know, you think the whole world's on fire for this particular cause. When in fact, the world is on fire for a cause and they, and they just ignore it. So again, I think when we look at these various extremes, um, that whenever you see one extreme kind of going on, you have to look and find that there's another extreme on the other end that probably gave birth to it. So that pretty much does it for the first half of the program. We'll take a little break now and hear from the folks that sponsor our programming here. So everybody sit tight and we'll be right back. Hey gang, we are back and I am Father Fred Gatchett, the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina. I'm the rector of Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas, and also part-time religion teacher at Sacred Heart High School, also here in Salina where I teach sophomores Old and New Testament. And you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the fine family of Divine Mercy Catholic radio stations. And on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And the great deception in the culture that we're talking about today is extremism. Um, We kind of started off the broadcast talking a little bit about the extremism in the sense of, you know, people talking about extreme sports or extreme eating or extreme couponing, all sorts of extreme things that are going on. But we were talking about other extremes, you know, the extremism of um, the Reverend Fred Phelps, you know, the Baptist minister from Topeka, Kansas, who um, always goes out and and protests against the the gay movement and protests the the funerals of of dead uh, American servicemen and women. Well, we, we kind of showed how, on the one hand, I guess I want, maybe I didn't make it clear in the, in, the, in the previous segment. I'm not saying what Fred Phelps is doing is good. I'm not saying I support what he's doing. But I'm saying that, that the, the, the genesis of where he came from is understandable if we frame it up in terms of extremes, that there was one extreme that bred Fred Phelps, another extreme and um, that there was one extreme, the total um, devaluation of human life that we find in our culture that bred the other extreme of the mass murders at Columbine High School or at Sandy Hook Elementary or, the again, that, that coop that um, opened fire at the, the screening of, of the Batman movie there in Colorado a while back. Um, we also saw that Mother Teresa herself, you know, kind of in a prophetic way, talked about that, talked about how we can see that um, that you know, in a country that slaughters one and a half million of its kids a year in abortion that whenever you, you kind of breed that violence into people, then don't be surprised. Another violence kind of um, takes it, you know, manifests itself like that. The other kind of extreme I want to talk about today, too, was um, when we talk about the immigration movement. You know, immigration is a big topic in the news. It has been for quite some time. And I guess there needs to be what they call full disclosure here. Uh, many of you probably know, if you know me very well, I, I do speak fluent Spanish. I spent the first seven years of my priesthood at the Cathedral in Salina, where I spent an awful lot of time working with the, Hispanic immigrant community, and even out here in Hayes, I still take my turn saying the Spanish Mass in a your heart of Mary Parish, and I help out with the Hispanic community when I can, whenever we do like little retreats and things like that. And so, um, you know, I'm kind of sympathetic to the, to the plight of the Hispanic community. And so again, there needs to be a little bit of full disclosure there. But I think even that aside, we want to look for the extreme here. And the, the extremes that we kind of want to, that we want to frame the, the discussion up into is this. There's sort of two extremes to the argument. One end of the argument, I think, with the immigration issue is when people say, well, we just need to get the, you know, get the Marines or get the Army or you know, get the, you know, the National Guard or are It's going to go door to door. We're going to pound on every door, and we're going to demand everybody show that they're here legally, that they're citizens of the country. And if they're not, we're going to round them up, load them up in rail cars, and deport them all. Some people will propose that. I think that um, probably what would happen is if we tried that, once the, it was on the news and once people saw the American military acting like Hitler's Gestapo, rounding up Jews, you know, they, they would, people would want no part of it. On the, the other extreme is the idea that, well, we should just open up the borders with anyone that wants to come in to come in. That's equally as absurd. We can't have that. I mean, the United States is a sovereign nation and we need to have control of our borders and our legal process needs to be the final word that says who gets to come in and who doesn't. And so I think you know, you've got those two extremes of, of the argument that then kind of cloud the real, the real cause and the real genesis of the problem that we have. How did we get to where we have, depending on, the, on who, whose estimate you're listening to, some folks say we've got 14 million illegals, some people say we've got 11 million, some people say we've got up to 20 million, whatever. But you know we, we've got at least 10 million, maybe 20 million illegal aliens in this country. How did it get there? Well, again, I think that if, if you say, well, a country that has lost so much control of its borders that can have between 10 and 20 million undocumented people in it, that's extreme. But I think that in order to maybe understand that extreme, we should look for another extreme that bred that second extreme. And I think that second extreme looks something like this. First of all, again, let's go back to the United States in the late 60s and early 70s. By that time, abortion was legal, contraception was widely used, and you had the, the attitude of people saying that, well, having more than 1.6 kids is irresponsible. I mean, we can understand, as Dr. Janet Smith says, we can understand that people have this primitive need to reproduce themselves. Okay, well, if you want to have your one boy and your one girl, you want to have your two kids, you know, we can understand that's okay. But if you have more than two kids, that's being irresponsible. Well, where's that gotten us? Well, it's it's had a, a number of effects on a number of different levels. First of all, let's just look at what's happened to us demographically. As a result of that attitude, that having more than 1.6 kids. Now, first of all, how do you have 1.6 kids? Well, it's pretty simple. Here's how it works out. If you have 10 couples, 10 couples means there's 20 people, since a couple means two and 10 times two is 20. What that's saying is on average in this country, if you have 10 couples, those 10 couples are having 16 children, all right? So you have 16 children per 20 couples. That means over time, your population is gonna go down. And then what ends up happening is then just having the warm bodies with a heartbeat that you need to staff the economy, people that you're going to need to raise the wheat and raise the cows and raise the strawberries and things like that, and people that are going to go out and slaughter the cows and harvest the wheat and pick the strawberries and people that are going to build the roads and build the railroads and do all these things that we want. If you're not generating the souls to do that, then you're going to be in trouble. And that's kind of what's happened. Again, one of the things I'll tell you for full disclosure, I'm a big believer in the free market system. I believe that what happens is, is that whenever there are certain laws of economics and laws of the marketplace that are every bit as predictable and every bit as undefiable as the laws of physics, like the laws of gravity and things like that, that sometimes, you know, for for a period of time, we can kind of push off, we can stave off having to answer to the laws of economics. But eventually, those things always come back to bite us. And I think that what we're seeing, what's happening is is that when you have couples just decided, well, you know, I'm not gonna have that many kids because kids are a burden, kids are an expense and so on, but I still want a road to drive on, and I still want fresh meat to eat, and I still want fresh strawberries, and I still want a clean hotel room to sleep in, and you know, I still want gas to put in my car, but I'm not gonna produce the workers. You know, my spouse and I are not going to produce the workers that are going to provide these things. Well, that's kind of an extreme attitude, all right? Now, that's just looking at it from a kind of a democratic, graphic, economic point of view. Also, it's kind of look at it from a spiritual and kind of social point of view. I've had this discussion many, many times with my students at Thomas More Prep and the students at the Campus Center. And basically, what our young people have been brought up to be taught, and again, if this isn't an extreme attitude, you tell me what is. They've been brought up to believe that number one, having more than one or two kids is irresponsible. You're overpopulating the planet, you're leaving too big of a carbon footprint, all these little buzzwords that we hear. And so kids are being brought up to, and they're being told that, well, you know, Johnny, well, Susie, you're a little threat to the rainforest and you probably really shouldn't even be here, but I guess since you're here, we'll let you stay. And so that's the first thing they're taught is that children are a burden and an expense. Children are a threat to Mother Earth and so on. Um, Quite to the contrary of what God tells us in the book of Genesis, that God put the earth here for us to serve our needs. Now, that doesn't give us carte blanche to go through and just destroy and wreak havoc on everything. But the the current environmentalist kook movement has completely got the thing upside down, trying to say that we have no business being here. We have every right to be here because God made the place for us. But again, like we said earlier, if you don't believe in God, well, then that doesn't make any sense. But I think what's happened is the kids have been brought up our kids have been brought up with two very very venomous and poisonous ideas the first one is that you shouldn't be here um that that having more than than one or two kids is irresponsible folks that's extreme the next thing they learn is well but i'm glad i'm an only child or only have one or two brothers and sisters because if i didn't then there wouldn't be as much to go around in other words kids are, are smart enough to figure out that if they had six or seven brothers and sisters, it's very unlikely that their mom and dad would be able to pay for cell phone contracts for seven kids and to buy seven cars and pay for seven insurance policies and keep seven tanks full of gas and things like that. But, but again, I've, I've had students just throw this right in my face and go, well, father, you know, if you, you know, if, if there were more kids, there would be less for me. Basically, it's kind of their way of thinking. Even in, in Mexico, you know, they have a saying in Spanish, la familia chica vive mejor. The small family lives better. Um, living better being defined as they, you know there's more stuff, there's more goodies to go around for everybody rather than more support and more love and more company from just having more people in your, in your house and in your home. So that's kind of the first thing that we wanna look at. You're going, now wait a minute, you started off talking about illegal immigration and you're talking about family size. Well, those two things are intimately hooked up. Because again, I think that the immigration system that we have and the problem that we have is an extreme problem. There's no question about it. But at the same time, this attitude that children are a burden, children are an expense, and even children themselves saying, I don't want more brothers and sisters because if I had more brothers and sisters, there would be less for me. That is extreme too. So that's the first piece. Now let's kind of go back and talk about the free market here for a second. So you have the entire country of, of a nation of people who, while they, they might not achieve it, their ideal, what they want, what's in their head is, my kid, my 1.6 kids are gonna go to school, go to college, and they're gonna get a good high-paying job. Well, again, Talk to anybody. I've I've asked this of adult ed classes. I have asked this of of students, of college students, high school students. What is the definition of a good job? In most people's mind, the definition of a good job is a job that pays the most amount of money for the least amount of work. Um, The idea of the job being something that is personally fulfilling to you and gives you a sense of being and a a sense of, of accomplishment for having done something worthwhile. No, that didn't matter. The most amount of money for the least amount of work. In other words, most people are thinking, well, you know, by God, my kid is going to sit behind a computer monitor in an air-conditioned office all year and get a six-digit salary. That's a good job. Um, The other jobs, going out and drilling for oil in western Kansas, you know, slaughtering cows in a beef packing plant, standing out in the summer heat, pouring asphalt or concrete on the highways, that's for somebody else's kid. Well, when you have the entire population saying that's for somebody else, well, then who does it? You've got everybody pointing their finger going, well, get somebody else to do that, get somebody else to do that, get somebody else to do that. And then you've got the natural forces of the marketplace saying, well, number one, there is no somebody else. And number two, we got to get this done. So now let's enter in piece number two. The, the, The other extreme, what is the most incompetent organization on earth? You figured it out, folks, the United States government, the most overfunded, wasteful and incompetent entity that the history of mankind has ever seen. And so on the one hand, our culture has said, all right, we're not gonna make children, we're only gonna have 1.6 kids per family, and those 1.6 kids are gonna have good jobs, in other words, jobs that pay the most for doing the least, but we're still gonna demand all these goods and services out of the economy. How do we do it? Well, one way we could do it would be just to import the laborers that we need in an orderly fashion. In other words, if you have you know Juan and Jose down in Mexico who go up to the American Embassy You know, our own American officials down there who we pay for by money that we borrow or by our taxes. If they go up to these people and say, "Okay, you know, Ellis County, Kansas, there's a bunch of people up there with oil drilling rigs that are sitting idle because they can't find people to go out and drill for the to man the rigs and drill for the oil. Why can't they find people to man the rigs and drill for the oil? Because the one point six kids want good jobs, job that pay the most for doing the least. Working in the oil fields is hard work. Nobody wants to do that. And so Juan and Jose go up to the American embassy in Mexico City or go to one of the American consulates and say, we want to go up and drill for oil in western Kansas. And the, when the guy behind the glass gets through laughing at them and telling them to get lost, well, you can see what happened was we just lost out on those potential workers. So that's piece two. Piece one is... We don't want to generate the workers ourselves, but we still demand the goods and services. Piece two is the United States government makes it impossible for us to import the replacement laborers in an orderly fashion where they could be documented and kept track of. And so since that happens, what's left? You got what we got, illegal immigration. You've got the forces of the marketplace saying, we need these workers and we need to get them up here. To, to be able to, to fulfill these needs that the marketplace is demanding because the America didn't generate the workers that we need. In fact, I think I've read someplace over the last 30 or 35 years, the only reason why the American population has grown over the last 30 or 35 years is because of immigration. It's not because of white Anglo-Americans reproducing themselves. Um, in fact, if anything, that demographic of the population keeps going down. And, um, and I think, you know, we see that. I mean, I'm sure you've seen in the, the reports on the news and so on that, um, you know, the Hispanic population continues to grow. The Muslim population continues to grow because those folks aren't afraid to have families, aren't afraid to have kids. And so, again, I think that, you know, we can see there's an extremism here. Is our illegal immigration a problem in the extreme? It most certainly is. There's no question about it. But look at the extreme circumstances and conditions that brought about that problem to begin with. Again, this idea that children are a burden and an expense, and I, I, I just often just almost, I, I'm, you know, just almost with tears in my eyes. Although I didn't cry in front of class because my kids would make fun of me, but it's just like what it must be like to be born, a you know, a child of the 80s or the 90s or the 2000s, and while your parents might not tell you to your face, you know, kid, son, daughter, you're a burden and an expense to me. The parents don't say that. At least I hope they don't. But that's certainly the, the attitude that they that they absorb from the culture at large. They see that. You know, when, when they hear such things as the small family lives better, that, well, if there was more kids in the family, you know, you wouldn't get everything that you have. When people are taught to think in those materialistic terms like that, that is a form of extremism. And the, then we have to see how, when we connect the dots, that there is a causal relationship between that form of extremism and the extremism that we see in the illegal immigration problem. Again, it's something that we we're brought upon ourselves. So again, just to kind of you know recap here a little bit, we've been talking about extremism and that when you see something that's extreme, when you see something in the news media or you hear somebody talking about something, you think, wow, man, that is really extreme. That is just really way out there. You know, you're right, you're probably right, it probably is. But I think that probably hopefully if you got anything out of this broadcast it would be okay. Well then if that is, you know, to the extreme, then what is it that what's the other extreme that brought that about? And I think that once we start, you know, sort of developing a a sense of smell for those extremes to kind of go, well, there, you know, there's this extreme and there's the other extreme that brought that first extreme about, you know, then I think we're going to be a little bit better, better informed, a little bit better armed to be able to understand the problem. And of course, once we understand the problem, the good news is we're in a much better position to be able to try to solve the problem. Um, So again, this isn't just like, you know, we rant and rave on the radio here for a while about problems, but then we can see, you know, there is a way to, to solve these problems as well. So that pretty much wraps it up for this installment of Double-Edged Sword. Thanks again for tuning in. Just want to remind you to visit our website at dv, that's V as in Victor, www.dvmercy.com. You can also call the station at 785-621-4110. If you go to our Divine Mercy website, there are archived installments of Double-Edged Sword, and also the One Body Program, both of which are locally produced by our Catholic radio stations here in Divine Mercy Radio. And those are there for you to peruse and listen to at your leisure if you wanna go pick up an older installment of one of those shows that you wanna listen to again. Also check out our donate button because um, there is where we depend on people's donations to keep us on the air and to keep the message going out to these Catholic airwaves. And so again, we thank you for tuning in to this installment of Double-Edged Sword here on Divine Mercy Radio, and we'll see you on the next time. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye and God bless.